Hi, welcome to the Book of Medora, the podcast where we discuss the lore of The Legend of Zelda. Uh, my name is Crystal, and uh, with me today is Monica. Hello. And Cameron. Hi. Boy, you really did turn it on, huh? I'm quite good at it. <laughs> um, yeah, Cameron was very sleepy before we started recording, but now he's very acting not sleepy. I don't think that anyone will be able to tell the difference one way or the other. Uh, uh, we left off last time on the episode I was not on. Yes, we, welcome back, Crystal. We yes, just, we yeah, are thank very you. glad to have you back to lend your structure. I heard, I heard my parents fought when the kids weren't there. <laughs> that did happen, and we're not sorry, but we're sorry that everyone had to hear it. <laughs> we we come off as a lot more argumentative, but that's just how we live. That is us. It's the reason we got married in the first place. We're like um, anime rivals who end up kissing in the end. Um. Yeah. We we ended up we started off by arguing shipping. Yeah. Like that's the that's the origin story for us. We argued about shipping. We agreed on timelines. That was important. Yeah. Um So we killed Starlord. We Star- did. It's time to, you know, get that mirror at Twilight, which I'm sure is very whole and unbroken. It's extremely not broken and Things would be very bad if it was broken, because the entire game up to this point hinges on the idea that we're able to go to the Twilight Realm with the Master Sword and end the terrors that have been taking place there. Yeah, seems like it's going to be simple and straightforward. But the problem, Cameron, is that the Mirror Twilight's been smashed real good. Yeah, you, you walk outside of the building, the Arbiter's Grounds, and you sort of circle up the, the Colosseum-like thing... And then you go into what's called the mirror chamber, which is, I guess, the top part of the building. I do like the name mirror chamber quite a lot. Yeah, there's no roof, though, so I don't know why it'd be a chamber. It's good, though. Maybe there used to be a roof before the Hylians tore the roof off the place. Maybe. Maybe the universe is the chamber. Ooh. There is a statue of the goddess of the sands in the center of the room. Is she the... Mm, okay, what's her role in this part of the room? Well, it makes me wonder if that was the original purpose of the room, like a place to worship the, the goddess of the sands. However, um, you have to use the gear thingy and bring down the goddess, and that raises the chains or, or lowers them. I can't figure it. Some gears work, and the mirror pops up. Oh, sorry. The goddess sinks... This raises the pillars where the sages' crests are, and then that lifts up a chained rock slab and the mirror pedestal. The way that this chamber is built, its role and the theming of the different structures around it, I think is actually very interesting and suggestive of an intersectional history that involves many different parts of Hyrule all at once. What do you mean? Well, the fact that it has... A bunch of pieces in it that suggest that the six sages were there implies that either... Is it six or seven? Six. Six sages implies that the sages were either involved in the construction of the place, making it almost an equivalent to the Temple of Time from Ocarina of Time, or else that it is built with their use in mind. But no matter how you take it, the Mirror of Twilight is very much there, and... 
the mirror of twilight itself, its movement of it, is tied into the imagery of the goddess of the Gerudo, which says to me that the actual guardians of the mirror of twilight were the Gerudo themselves. Um, I don't really think so. Why not? Well, for two reasons. One, the architecture to me kind of feels like, again, it's the Hylians building over the Gerudo architecture and sort of subverting the the religious usage of the place for their own purposes. But uh, the second reason is the sages say that they were given the mirror. Who were given the mirror? The sages. By? Uh, the goddesses? Yes. Well, that just means that this was a meeting place for the sages and that the sages kept it here. That doesn't necessarily mean that the Gerudo weren't the ones who weren't guarding the place when the sages weren't around. It's still on Gerudo Holy Land. One of the sages says, At the command of the goddesses, we sages have guarded the Mirror of Twilight since ancient times. Yes. I guess that's fair enough, but it is still very much in Gerudo lands. What makes me wonder, though, is maybe the mirror was moved there. That's possible, but there's a problem with the idea that this particular place is somewhere that was built on top of the holy place of the Gerudo. And that is that it is used in Ganondorf's execution. Unless the time frame between the Gerudo being conquered and Ganondorf being captured was very long indeed, they did not have time to build on top of this place and for it to become dilapidated to the degree that it is in the sequence that we're about to talk about. Maybe this place had already been abandoned by the Gerudo at the time of Ocarina. In the Gerudo Desert? Yeah. I suppose that's possible, but... And then they wanted to execute Gandorf in the most religious important site to the Gerudo or what was once. Where the Mirror of Twilight oh, wow. is. I didn't even consider that angle that they're really <laughs> adding insult to execution. Yeah. I, it seems like this is a base for the Six Sages and that Ganondorf was taken back there specifically so that the Sages could pass judgment on him because it's a crime against Hyrule and a crime against the gods that he's committed. So only the Sages are qualified to pass judgment on him. He's not being judged by the law of the land in this coming sequence. The Sages speak to and for the gods. Yeah, that- I... And I don't understand the pushback against the idea that the Gerudo, that there's significance to the idea that the Mirror of Twilight was entrusted to the sages who have their particular fortress in the middle of Gerudo territory on top of what is clearly a very ancient and very holy Gerudo place. Well, I think there's a charitable reading and an uncharitable one. I have to think that the six sages would not be tied into politics in the same way. Well, interestingly enough, during this conversation, the sages do mention Ganondorf. Well, you go into the cutscene, but what is he described as? Okay, I tell you what, uh, let's talk about the cutscene then. Okay. So, when we get up here and the Mirror of Twilight is broken, Midna is very distraught to discover the state of the mirror because the mirror was supposed to be the final step in winning back her people. She's gathered up the ancient magic of the tribe, but she does not have the way home so that she can free them. And that's when the sages show up. And remind me exactly what it is that the sages say to her. Let's pull the script. A dark entity lurks in the twilight. It houses an evil power. Ooh. 
You who are guided by fate, you who possess the crest of the goddesses, hear us. At the command of the goddesses, we sages have guarded the Mirror of Twilight since ancient times. You seek it, but the Mirror of Twilight has been fragmented by mighty magic. That magic is a dark power that only he possesses. His name is Ganondorf. Yeah. He was the leader of a band of thieves who invaded Hyrule in the hopes of establishing dominion over the sacred realm. He was known as a demon thief, an evil magic wielder renowned for his ruthlessness, but he was blind. Now, we are going over the particulars of the words of this sequence, but leaving out a lot of what's taking place in it. Uh, it's very interesting that they do not name the Gerudo, but just say a band of thieves. Right. I don't know if that necessarily implies that he led the Gerudo in this conflict. It could be that they are referring to a more specific band who Nabooru would have referred to as Ganondorf's followers in Ocarina of Time. That's possible. We don't really see any human followers of Ganondorf. And it seems very much that, practically speaking, Nabooru is the leader of the Gerudo in Ocarina of Time. Well, I guess this is important because we might as well talk about the timeline split um, here. Okay. Because this happens after, because Twilight Princess takes place in the child timeline. Um, Link from Ocarina of Time, the player Link, goes back in time, reunites with Zelda, um, you know, presumably saves the Gorons and the Zora, and outs Ganondorf as a bad man. Which either delays or kicks off the war. Right, it gives the Hylians time to prepare, and maybe at that point Ganondorf has other troops. It has prevented him from accessing the Sacred Realm at any rate. Right. And murdering the king. Right. Probably. Ganondorf and his men do murder the king in the original, uh, well, I guess we'll just call it the adult timeline now. They do murder the king in the adult timeline, but it's never implied at any point in Ocarina of Time that any of the involved followers outside of Ganondorf himself were Gerudo. Well, but the Gerudo still, no, it it does mention the Gerudo in the child timeline. Could you elaborate? And the child timeline. It, as a child, um, right uh, right when after you get the three sacred stones and you talk to the slain soldier and so on, I think they talk about people. May I refer to the specific line by the dying soldier from Hyrule Castle Town during this sequence? Uh, okay, so... This is after he tells you that he has something he has to say to the boy from the forest. Zelda's nanny, Impa, sensed danger and escaped from the castle with our princess. I tried to stop Ganondorf's men from chasing them, but... And his usage of the word men here is important, because I cannot think of a single situation in which you would refer to a group of Gerudo as men. No, you would not. (laughs) It does imply that Ganondorf had following him a masculine force of some kind. Yeah, though I guess the one angle is possibly translation. One, that's very possible, but we're taking the English script as right. its own canon. Yes. When so are we going to have a game where Ganon has his own foxhound unit? Oh, that would be so sick. 
oh, I want that so badly. I think that Metal Gear is very silly, but I do love the idea of this collection of almost supernatural super soldiers who have abilities that make no sense, but in the setting of The Legend of Zelda, it would be everything that it needed to be. There's no more justification needed because everything here is magic anyway. But yes, um, getting back to the previous point, Ganondorf leading a band of thieves does not necessarily mean that the band of thieves are the Gerudo. Okay, okay. You're being very positive about the sages today. Well, I don't mean to be positive about the sages, but the textual evidence is there if we want to go down that yeah, route. Yeah, you know, I agree. I agree. He's, he's also not recognized as being the king of the Gerudo. Yes, right. he is the leader of a band of thieves. Because it's possible that in his fiddling around with time, like Link could have revealed Gandorf's schemes to the Gerudo as well. And gotten him banished in some form there, too. Mm. So maybe the Grudo even rallied against Ganondorf, and that's why the Six Sages are headquartered there. I don't know. No, it does still make a certain amount of sense, because it does mean that our reading of the Arbiter's Grounds would have to be readdressed and possibly remeasured, though. Hmm. Because if the Arbiter's Grounds was simply filled up with a kind of evil that just occurred over and over, because there is a great occurrence of a number of Gerudo kings who are very bad. Or when they're bad, they are as bad as it gets, because the magic of the Gerudo is very powerful indeed. Anyway. By the way, anyway. Ganon, did, Ganon did do something. He invaded Hyrule. Link's warning uh, prepared them for it, so it didn't go as badly as it did in the other timeline. But Ganon tried to do evil things and was subdued. Yeah, he definitely invaded. And, you know, based on how the hero's shade is dressed in full armor... um, And his tallness. And his tallness. you, You can kind of conclude that he probably led the Hylian forces. Uh, Which means the war went that long? Oh, yeah. I think my interpretation of it would be that robbed of the chance to assassinate the king, Ganondorf probably spent years rallying his forces so that his invasion could work better. Because there's evidence later in the game that Ganondorf fought his way all the way to the very foot of the tower in the center of Hyrule Castle. Yeah, so there was have been times for Link to prepare. And it would have been safe enough at one point, I suppose, after Gandorf was revealed to be a bad guy, that um, Link felt it safe to chase after Navi and the events of Majora's Mask happen. Come that to think sense. of it, it, come to think of it, we may not even be looking at a case where Ganondorf waged open war, because if they're talking about him being a band of thieves, then him leading a relatively small force through the sewers leading into Hyrule Castle makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Huh. He attempted an assassination. Essentially, and was stopped. You know, this is my favorite cutscene in the game. It's a really good cutscene. Ganondorf is chained to a big old slab of rock, and the six sages are are all facing him in a semicircle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, In all of his fury and might... He was blind to any danger, and thus was exposed, subdued, and brought to justice. Yet, by some divine prank, he too had been blessed with the chosen power of the gods. 
There's now. a lot of debate about this line. Oh, what sort of debate surrounds it? How did Ganondorf get the Triforce of Power? Well, I think before we get into that, let's just, for our listeners, talk about how the way that they reach this conclusion is that Ganondorf, chained to the obelisk, is confronted by the sages. One of them produces a sword made of light that glows as the sages themselves do. Because the sages in this are all very ghostly figures with masks for faces that float out away from their knot heads. Mm-hmm. And Ganondorf is impaled with one directly through the stern, impaled with the sword directly through the sternum, and he slumps as if dead. But then he... Just as the line about being blessed with the... The word, yet. Yes. We see his hand, and the Triforce of Power glows there, and his hand closes into a fist, and he pulls against the chains that bind him, as the sages realize what's happening, and he breaks loose and grabs the Sage of Water by the face, and they just dissolve. He smashes through them and is left holding a mask that he drops onto the ground. And he's fully about to go after the other ones, but they were like, nope, nope, nope. He pulls the sword out of his chest, laughing. And I don't think he quite understands what's happening to him, but he does understand that they can't kill him. Yeah, Gandorf seems surprised when he is resurrected from death. But happy about it. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, it's so good. I love this sequence so much because the terror that they show is very real. And it's at this point that they activate the Mirror of Twilight, which projects a very complicated pattern onto the obelisk behind Ganondorf, opening a portal into the Twilight Realm, which draws Ganondorf forcefully through it. And they slam it shut behind him and are left to mourn their dead. So how do you get the Triforce of Power? What's the debate around this scene? Um... Some people just think it's bad writing and it doesn't make any sense. Well, I mean, that's a valid perspective, I guess. Some people believe the gods wanted to for Ganon to have the Triforce. Oh, this is the interpretation where Din is actually, like, behind Ganon. Yes, there are folks who believe that. Like, Ganon isn't just the carrier of the Triforce of Power. Din is actively his patron and is in his corner the whole time. Yes. My belief is simply... So, at the end of Ocarina of Time, we can see on Link's hand that he has the Triforce of Courage. Mm-hmm. Because he, his Triforce of Courage variable has been checked. <laughs> So when he goes back in time and he doesn't have it, the Triforce senses that and is like, oh, this guy's supposed to have it, though. He has it. So he splits up and the courage goes to Link and the other two have to go somewhere. Because the Triforce is a trans-temporal power in the first place. Yes. It's like, it totally happened. And it's like, but it didn't happen. That happens in the future. And the Triforce is like, no, it happened, past tense, in the future, you rube. (laughs) Because every time in Ocarina of Time, you travel back and forth after, you know, opening up the, the Temple of Time. Yes, you return. You have the, the Triforce. You return to a time, to the moment that you grabbed the sword, which is before you gained the Triforce of Courage. Right, but you still have the but Triforce st- of Courage. But you do still have it, yes. Right. Time travel's fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I can only guess that, you know, it, the Triforce of Courage definitely 
stayed in the future too. Yes. Because Zelda stored them away into different places. Mm. Right. But I guess Crystal, yes, it makes your explanation makes sense. The so, the trigger I don't think was activated. Divine prank is meant to be taken uh literally here, but it is very good at illustrating how even the ancient sages who know everything about everything have no idea what the fuck is going on here. Yes, this is one of the very best scenes at illustrating how there is no such thing as expertise in how the world works or what has happened in it when it comes to the Zelda universe. Everyone is potentially wrong about things in which they should be the most expert. That unreliability of anyone is one of my favorite things about the setting because no one can claim absolute wisdom and even those who carry the power of the gods know not what it is. Except possibly Zelda, but she doesn't have enough lines to illustrate that one way or the other. Oh, it's good. I love it. (laughs) I'm all behind your theory on it, Crystal. I think that is easily the best and least messy take on it. Though the idea that Din is actually evil is also interesting in its own way and suggests things about a larger cosmology that wouldn't fit in any Zelda game to be addressed at all. Din is power, and she likes the powerful list. I guess. Ganon's the powerful list. Then why didn't she, like, back Demise? She was on vacation. (laughs) That's true. Across the universe. Well, Hilia, then I, I asked you to watch this for one cosmic week. <laughs> and Hilly is like, I'm dead now. <laughs> I rose quartz it. Yeah, Nehru, Hilly you rose take care of her, okay? God. <laughs> oh, Steven Universe is good. Everybody listening to this should watch Steven Universe. <laughs> Steven Universe is a good show. It's yeah. a, that's, that's legitimately a good show. And Minda's, so as the sages tell this story, Minda's like, yeah, I already knew that, idiots. <laughs> it's like, are you all stooges? Did you not know that there's some non, non-twily non power behind this guy who's doing stuff outside of the magic of our people? Do I? Is this the scene where she tells them what happened? Tells them? Or No, Zant tells that story. Yes. Yeah. Minda's line is, right. you're just now figuring out where Zant got his power. It's far too late. Yeah, I think here, like, she isn't saying so much that she knows, but so much as going, it's way too late for this reveal, guys. It's like, this doesn't matter now. Right. Everything is lost. Her assumption is the mirror is totally broken. And the the sages are like, no, it's not. Pretty much only the actual leader of the Twilight can totally destroy it. And Zant's not that, so he broke it into pieces and then hit them, but they're still out there. That's a very interesting bit of royalty magic rules. Yeah. It means that Zant, backed by the power of Ganon, cannot utterly destroy this thing. So what so does it take, this line. What does it take to be the true leader exactly? Well, Zant wasn't elected. <laughs> okay, I guess, yeah. So you think election and not like divine election? Well, no, it's just that Midna has the will of the people behind her. Zant doesn't. Or maybe Zant doesn't have that power specifically because he abuses his people. He lacks worthiness in the first Could Killmonger break the mirror? Killmonger absolutely could not break the mirror. Okay, okay. Could Um, the Vision break the mirror? Vision also could not break the mirror. Okay, okay. Okay. This is uh, post-Ragnarok Mirror of Twilight. Okay. 
This one line, once broken by magic, the mirror of twilight became fragments, which even now lie hidden across the land of Hyrule. It's very carefully worded because the sages don't say, hey, Zant went around and hid it, but, or hid them. But the only alternative to that is like the mirror pieces themselves like fucked off and, and said, I'll go here. It's not unimaginable. I mean, it's possible, though the easiest read of this situation is that Zant scattered them by hand. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, again, the Mirror of Twilight feels very much like, you know, the Snow Queen. The, the dust from the Snow Queen's sled. The dust was scattered by the Snow Queen's sled Oh, I'm, as it traveled across the world. No, I'm just talking about the mirror from the Snow Queen, the Devil's Mirror. Oh, that one. Yes, yes that mirror where just a, scattered. a single piece of it could freeze a person's heart and turn them into something that they're not. It's a pretty mm. common motif. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting necessarily that the Legend of Zelda series has a major plot element based on a Hans Christian Andersen story, but it wouldn't be the first time that we've seen some extremely Japanese productions that do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um... But yeah, I mean, it's possible that the fragments just flew out the way they did. What's interesting, though, is that the sages know where they are. Yes. This is the part where it seems very unreasonable that Xant went around and hid the mirror shards. Because one is in the snowy mountain heights, one is in an ancient grove, and one is in the heavens. Yeah, this is... (laughs) (laughs) So, like, Xant going up to the frigging city in the clouds and... It's not just in the ancient grove, it is in the ancient grove, through the gate of time, into the past, into the temple of time slash light temple. And it's not just in the temple of time, it's in the heart of the fucking thing. Yeah. Like, way down there. You do need the Master Sword to progress through certain parts, and you need the power of the Uku to get past certain traps and open certain doors. So Zant probably didn't do it. Well... The question of how it got there may not be the most important, but I think you could argue that it's a question that the game doesn't give quite enough time to. No. Ding. Anyway, anything else we need to get into about this particular scene, Crystal? No, I think we covered it. Okay. So from here, we've reached a point where now the focus of the game has shifted from gathering up the pieces of the power of the twilight to picking up the pieces of the mirror and there's only three of them well one of the chunks was on the pedestal right but i thought that was only like a fifth of one it's a pretty it's like a little slice of pizza the other chunks are pretty big all right are there only three of them though Mm -hmm. yeah you only have to gather three more okay so where do you go from here well, you can go back to Hyrule Castle Town and talk to the friends of Hyrule. Yeah, you could talk to the Resistance. <laughs> um, Aru, because he was the one that sent you into the desert, he points out, I guess Link brings up the sages, he brings up that those sages uh, once served the royal family, and they were appointed as tutors to the young Princess Zelda. Hey, who are these guys? <laughs> Who are the sages? Yeah. Isn't that an interesting question? Because they're very much and plainly related to the sages who were in Ocarina of Time. They bear the same symbols on their crests. I think the implication is supposed to be that Ganondorf murdered them in the adult timeline, so they had to be replaced. 
I think that's the conclusion that we reached in the Ocarina of Time episode, yes. Um, but like, is Rauru an ancient sage? Um, yes. It, that's him. That, he's that one over there. <laughs> but he has different forms. He, isn't he in, in the sacred realm? Um, the sacred realm shows him as he is on the inside. A big man. With okay, big... so these are like projections from the sacred realm in the Temple of Light. Except if you get killed as a projection, you die for real? Not for, well... Ganondorf smoked the Sage of Water. I guess. Killing they ghosts are... is not unprecedented in this series. Isn't it? I mean, you, don't you kill ghosts? You kill Poes. We came to the conclusion last episode that Poes are not ghosts. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, well, it was sharp and flat, you can kill them. Okay, sharp and flat are totally just fucking ghosts. And yeah, they the look Ocarina like of Time, Rauru ref- calls himself one of the ancient sages who long ago built the Temple of Time. Yes. Are these those guys? Yes. Okay. So they've been around a while. They have. It's interesting, though, because, like... That means that the sequence that we just saw is the alternative version of the scene from the unseen sequence in Ocarina of Time where Ganondorf finds these guys and murders all of them with his Triforce magic. Yeah. Oh, you want that shit. So do you. Yeah. Wait, no, it's fine. But it's interesting here because even though this is very much the same character, Raru's like, he's right there. That's him. Is it? It seems to be. Unless Raru, like, Raru's not a reincarnation of an ancient sage. He's the genuine article. I, but... Gabora Gabora was the reincarnation of an ancient sage. No, he's a different form of an ancient <laughs> sage. That's di- it's different. Right, so Raru can project himself as Kapora Ke- Ge- Gabora, and this is another projection of Raru, the Sage of Light? I think that this is the same character seen from a different storytelling perspective. Okay, okay, Mm. I I can see that. I know that that's a lot more metatextual than we tend to get on this show, but I think that it's maybe the easiest and best way to read the differences in design for this individual who is so radically different from one portrayal to the next, in that the way we are shown the world in Ocarina of Time is simply very different from how we are shown the world in Twilight Princess. Yeah. It's a different storyteller who's relating it to us, which is both... uh, metaphorically and literally true. Princess Zelda will at some point say that the Master Sword was crafted by the wisdom of the ancient sages, which is plenty a lie. Or an very, untruth, rather. That's very much... Uh, yeah, that's definitely an untruth, but it would be in keeping with the knowledge that we are given in Link to the Past. It's an inaccuracy. Yes, an inaccuracy. Um, it's an interesting line there that... Prince, the young Princess Zelda, assumedly the same Zelda who disappeared like five hours ago, is she was tutored by the sages as a child. Yeah. By the way, nobody's freaking out about the castle being encased in a giant like crystal cube thing. They're the sages. They they like they've got it. No, they, I mean like everybody in the town, the castle town. Nobody goes there. <laughs> um, Aru talks about the sad state of Hyrule Castle, but I mean, sad state is a weird way to describe there's a giant, like, dark brown glass cube around this thing and nobody can get in or out. Now, hold on a minute. I want to keep talking about for a second how Raru probably hit Princess Zelda across the knuckles with a ruler when she wasn't paying enough attention. Okay, to class. Cameron. Cameron. You're. 
hatred of Rauru is getting a bit too far here. <laughs> okay, do you want me to say like the unreincarnated version of Ruto? Wait, no, sorry, they're gone. She was only tutored by five of the six sages because the sage of oh, water yeah. was a fucking corpse. <laughs> no. Did the sages create the goddess sword? No. No. Like, I'm, I'm, I mean, we could also accept the idea that Phi or Fee is an unreliable narrator as well, but she very much describes herself not separate from the sword, but the entirety of herself as being a creation of the goddess Hylia. Okay. That may be the whole trope thing of attributing it to the highest person in charge, though. You're not wrong. We've discussed this with other things, like who chased the Twilight out. We'll talk about that particular bit a bit more once we get around to Skyward Sword, I think, because I feel like Zelda might have lines relating to this after she awakens to Hylia's memories. But I don't know for sure. It's been a while. They sure didn't announce Skyward Sword HD, did they? Oh. It's a little early for that. Is it? Yeah. But why? It's it's only been uh, seven years. So? I want my Skyward Sword of the Wild. Okay, that's a little bit much. No, it's not too much to ask for Skyward Sword only with Breath of the Wild mechanics. (laughs) Dream big, baby. Yep. Always. We're off to Snow Peak. We're off to Snow Peak. Oh, uh, Yeti, Yeti. I love the Yetis. Yes, we. I love the Yetis, the too. The Yetis, uh, you could make a very cogent argument for them being literally the best characters in the game. But we can't meet the Yetis yet because there is more side questing or main questing to do. There's more questing. What is it the, the next thing that you have to do? Well, you go over to um, the foot of Snow Peak, and you meet Ashe, and she is in her cool Yeti outfit. Oh, it's a very cool Yeti outfit. She's wearing that quilt. And she points out that um, this mountain is effed. Yeah. It's like no mountain that she's ever seen before. Right. And you can't go up it right now because it's big and snowy and, and confusing and whatever. But actually, there have been sightings of this mysterious creature coming down. And, you know, she's taken and interviewed um, all these Zora who have seen it. And she's done a little sketch along with this giant red fish that the, um, the individual was seen with. And she's like, go find out more. So you have to go back to the Zora for this? Or do you, you need to... You go back to the Zora first. Okay. And you talk to the Zora and, you know, some will say, go over there to the pond where they had more of a sighting. And then you talk to those and they're like, oh, yeah, that's a reek fish. All right. And yeah, we saw the Yeti or whatever mysterious individual um, by that pond. But, you know, those reek fish. Well, you know who's good at catching those reek fish? The prince who is not here. But maybe you should go talk to him. Oh, I forgot this part. So you troop over to Kakariko. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, this goes so long. Yes. See, that's one of the things that I've been thinking about with regards to the Twilight Princess episodes, in that for some games, we tend to just skip over things a lot. But Twilight Princess, I feel like we fail to capture huge parts of the setting if we skip over the things that come between the dungeons. Because if we don't, we just talk about the dungeons the whole time. 
There's a lot of required trekking. There is. And most of the characterization and character interactions are hidden in here. And there's a ton of it. But talking about even a small part of it, I'm playing through Phantom Hourglass right now. And we can skip over big parts of it because the character interactions are relatively low. And most of it is puzzle solving. But this shit, you got to talk to a lot of people. So you run over to Kakariko and the kids tell you that Rallis has been hanging out in the graveyard. So you troop over to the graveyard, and Rallis is by the entrance to, I guess, where his dad is buried. And did we already go over the part of moving Rallis over to Kakariko? Yeah. Did, we didn't miss that, did we? No, we, we took him to Kakariko, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, with Ilio, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then Rallis is like, oh, yeah, Reekfish, you can take this... this um Special hook. Special earring. That is actually a hook that is made from coral that the reekfish eat for some reason. Yeah. And he's a little bit sad because he doesn't know how he can live up to the legacy of his mother. Which I find is pretty notable because sons wanting to be like their mothers is almost unheard of. It's relatively uh, subversive for a Zelda narrative. Or many game narratives. Well, I'm talking about Zelda in particular. Yeah. Where uh, men trying to live up to a feminine ideal, especially in a game like Twilight Princess, is very unusual. Yeah. Also, he's sad because his mom's dead. That too. And he just fucking woke up to that. Yeah. Poor Rallis. So you you have the fish hook now, the special fish hook, and then you go over to the mother and child rocks. Which is the pond where he where the Yeti's been spotted. Yes, and where the reek fish congregate. And you fish yourself a reek fish. He's a big stinky fish. And then you smell the reek fish. As a wolf. You know, they didn't even have a reek fish for him to smell, even though somebody could have presumably said, like, hey, we've got, like, you know, some remains somewhere. Yeah. Reek fish, know. very rare. Um, You sniff the reek fish and you understand the scent of it, even though it should be pretty smelly. And it's pretty smelly because you can trace the scent now. All the way across... The entire continent, basically. Yeah, and, and up Snow Peak, and that's how you can navigate this crazy, snowy, blizzardy mountain. I would like to discuss briefly one of the lines uh, that Link says to Link uh, during this little pre-dungeon sequence. Okay. Do you not already feel the courage granted by the strength as it guides you step by step toward your true enemy yeah so like link link understands that all links must kill a ganon is that is is it the second to last one that's gotten here yeah it's the second to last one. Oh, so it's this, up the mountain right this is where he learns the mortal draw yes which is my favorite move in twilight princess by a thousand miles it's fun it's so good you have to stand with your sword sheathed and just time it and press A or whatever. As the enemy is within range. I love that Link has a special animation once he learns this where he will wait with his hand just away from the hilt of the master's sword and he doesn't grab it until you press the A button. It's very cool. <laughs> I wish they brought these back. So you, you, I don't know. Well, I know. Well, I, some special moves would be fine, but this game was kind of unwieldy with it. What is it that you like about the idea of this particular line, Crystal, guiding him toward his true enemy? I like that Link understands that it is not 
Zant, who is the true enemy, it is Ganondorf, the same enemy that he faced, and the same enemy that his descendant must inevitably face. Because the work is unfinished. Yes. There is the one real failure that Link from Ocarina of Time had, in that he succeeded in subduing Ganondorf, but he did not finish the job himself. Did not get to stick the sword right in his fucking head. He fucking died. Yeah. I mean, who else would have killed Link? At this, Well, I, there's a lot of argument about this, actually. And I guess we'll get to that at a later point. But yeah, it's one of the better bits that tells you more about the particulars of the hero's shade and what he sees as the ultimate purpose of his bloodline. If you do read the English version of this script very much paints twilight princess link as being descended from ocarina of time link it's fine it's very cool the hero must face the adversary yeah pretty much satan i mean ganon is way closer to satan in this version well no the Probably... adversary is such a good name for <laughs> a, a religious mythic villain it really is like that's much stronger than the idea of Satan, the guardian of hell, because the adversary implies that there is some equality in the relationship. Because if you are the adversary of the creator of everything, then you, on some level, stand on equal footing with the engine behind the entire universe. Which is what makes Ganon scarier as the series goes on. I was thinking that probably, like, Ganon is very much mostly the devil here in Twilight Princess, but he's probably closest to Milton's take on Lucifer in Wind Waker. Yeah. Yeah, and that people are tricked into liking him. (laughs) Yeah, constantly. And he he thinks he's the good guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's that's what people uh, tune into us for, is hot takes on critical uh, banter around Paradise Lost. Now I'm just reading about the history of the Satan. Yeah? And he first appears in the Tanakh as a heavenly prosecutor, a member of the sons of God subordinate to Yahweh, who prosecutes the nation of Judah in the heavenly court and tests the loyalty of Yahweh's followers by forcing them to suffer. Yes. See, this is why you'll find certain interpretations of the text that paint Satan and Lucifer as separate figures which you can probably see easiest in pop culture in a series like Shin Megami Tensei. Mm-hmm. The, the authority on Christianity. <laughs> well, it's not an authority on Christianity, but it does do... A, it, it's weird because this goofy-ass series does actually go deeper into some parts of the Apocrypha than a lot of people who actually worship the Abrahamic God. Satan's modern interpretation was influenced by the Zoroastrian concept of Angra Menu. That's fucking sick. I I like very few things as much as I like religious etymology. You should get into the Elder Scrolls. I, mm, we already have a Book of Medora podcast. (laughs) And the Elder Scrolls, there's a... (laughs) That's one of the things about the Elder Scrolls that strikes me, and keep in mind, I've only played some of Oblivion and Skyrim, but there's this separation between the cosmology of the Elder Scrolls versus the more normal storytelling that you experience in the games themselves. Because 
I'm made to understand that the cosmology behind the Elder Scrolls is in fact very large and very complicated and reaches back many thousands of years or eons in a way that mortals can barely wrap their heads around but also that very little of that has much of anything to do with what's going on in any of the games. Mm, you know, it's it's there in the background, but it is certainly meant to be esoteric knowledge. Whereas compare that to the Legend of Zelda series, where even if it is esoteric knowledge that's known by very few people in the setting, you are still going up directly with the forces of the cosmology itself and brushing against the engine of creation constantly. Yeah, I mean, you know, you kill Alduin. You do kill... What's Alduin's larger role in the setting? He's the world eater. He signifies the end of a culpa. I remember that the idea is that at the end of time, like the very end of the world, the last battle will be, t- be between Alduin and whatever form the Dovahkiin takes at th- that time. Something like that. And the world, like Alduin is essentially the world serpent for the Elder Scrolls setting. Yeah, he's certainly influenced by th- the world serpent whose name I forget. <laughs> Jormungandr. Jormungandr. The Midgar snake. Mew Mew. No. So what's the difference between him and Nidhogg? Nidhogg is the serpent, which may be interpreted as a worm or a snake or a dragon, who rests between and beneath the roots of the world tree and seeks to poison it, to kill everything. And the lowest level of hell, at least in some readings, this isn't laid out explicitly in any of the Ada that I'm aware of, though I would have to go back and do some rereading. But he does chew on the corpses of the dead. As well oh, as try- as well as Corinthians four four is such a good verse. Okay. The God, lowercase, of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, uppercase. This is where people get into allegory and say that, you know, consumerism is the new god. Well, I mean, the Bible refers to existent gods outside of the god of Abraham, like, in many places. In fact, I think what's always interested me is reading into, I guess, the older Abrahamic religion where there was a female duo or accompaniment to Yahweh. As part of... I'm actually not familiar with this. Could you... This doesn't have to be in the podcast, but there there was evidence of a a queen of the gods or, you know, Yahweh's counterpart that was that is still lying around, but was mostly obliterated. Interesting. I That's would be very... I forgot her name. I think it was something like Ash something. Or... I, I would be deep into reading that particular apocrypha, but like biblical apocrypha has some of the coolest shit in it. But even in like the King James version of the Bible, which is the most sanitized imaginable take on what that book is supposed to say, you can find evidence of the idea of the heavenly host not necessarily being God amongst subservient, but God as part of a pantheon of beings that are like him Ugh. have you played shin megami tensei a strange journey i have not the plot of that game is that the mother goddesses of old the earth goddesses are seeking revenge on yahweh 
and his people for messing up the earth real good. Because these earth goddesses predated worship of Yahweh. And in Shin Megami Tensei, that means that they are older than the idea of Yahweh, the creator of the universe. That's right. I slacked it. So I, I, I like I like that particular take on it because it means that the old worship was pushed out by the new worship. So Yahweh gets to claim that he created. So Yahweh, like the actual, the demiurge is a character. <laughs> say the, demiurge. the demiurge is a character in Shin Megami Tensei that you run into multiple times and he's separate from the one God. But in that version of the story, even the one God is himself effectively a higher tier demiurge. Yeah, I'm, I'm to understand that Shin Megami Tensei 4 Apocalypse has a lot of shaking up of the Shin Megami Tensei cosmology, but I've not I'm played that one. I'm told that Shin Megami Tensei 4 Apocalypse tries to walk back some of the weird and shitty nationalism of the ending of Shin Megami Tensei 4. Oh yeah, it would be cool if it did that. It, it would be cool, and somebody told me that it did it, so I mean, maybe I should go look at that. A shower, Cameron, lady. you have to leave all this in. <laughs> okay, yeah, I don't see why not. Um, where were we? I believe that we just got to a stinky fish and started following its stank up the side of a mountain. Yeah, so you get to the Yeti, and he's a very big Yeti, and he has a very big fish in his hand, which explains why it's so stinky. It's super stinky, and that fish is easily bigger than Link is. If you approach... Yeto as a wolf he will note that this is an unusually colored wolf a rare color wolf and that means tasty but he can't you know kill and take you back home because he's got the fish yes i, I like Yeto. he's just he's just a big jolly boy he is and all he wants to do is tend to his relationship with his wife who doesn't feel very well right now his, his wife is ill, and he's just taking care of her like a good husband. Yeah, the fish is very nutritious, so he's going to cook something for her. Stinky and bitter fish, very good medicine. I don't know if it's bitter. I don't know. If it's healthy, it's usually at least a little bit bitter. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I love everything about Yeto's design because he looks like he's wearing, like, his... One of the funny things about Ashe's uh, Yeti outfit is that she's wearing a poncho that's quilted because it's very warm. But when you find Yeto, his hair has a pattern that's almost quilted in and of itself. And he wears like a bit like the saddle for an enormous horse on his head as a hat. There isn't a reason for that. No. I used to think that she was like, does Yeto sit on it? No. No, no. No. Why? Okay. Why? No. That's silly. He just wears. always wearing a saddle for a hat. I mean, it's sized for his head. Yeah. It looks charming. He has this giant, like, beaver's tail or bee's nest for a tail. It's a beaver tail, basically. Only round. And you fo- do you just follow him all the way up the mountain? You, well, so you find he him mentions he has a shiny mirror piece in his house, and he invites you over for dinner. And to get down to his house, you have to snowboard, snowboard down the mountain on a large chunk of ice. Is it ice or, like, a leaf? It's an leaf, ice, leaf. ice leaf. Yes. Oy. It's very cold up there. <laughs> that was actually a pretty fun mini game, and I can see why they brought it back as its own mechanic in Breath of the Wild. Yeah, snowboarding mini games have never been bad. I'm trying to think of a bad one. Coming up blank. Final Fantasy VII. FF7 wow. good. Sonic Adventure good. 
Yeah, I get. Yeah, even in Sonic Adventure, it was pretty fun. And if that one's fun, then all of them are fucking fun. What's that supposed to mean? Actually, I say that as if Final Fantasy VII <laughs> isn't the worst version of that mini game. Like I, it, I, I don't. Like, I couldn't call that one good. Like it has the worst version of any mini game inside of it. It has the worst real time strategy game of all time. It has the worst <laughs> bike racing of all time. Chrono Trigger's bike racing kicks the shit out of Final Fantasy VII's. I, I, anyway, yeah. we get to this large, dilapidated mansion on the peak. Well, not the peak, because you ride down the peak, but near the peak of the mountain. Ladies, I'm very tired. <laughs> I think this would be a good stopping point. Okay. Yes. We should take a couple of questions, though. Yeah, where can people send us questions, Cameron? The best place to send us questions, as ever, is to the podcast email, Podcast at gmail.com. That's bookofmedorapodcast at gmail.com. I've been told that there is a question you saved especially for me. Yes. Uh, that letter came in from Daniel and goes as follows. Hi. I was thinking, would you ever be interested in discussing Bionicle lore in some bonus episodes? It's just rife with weird lore and was a childhood interest of mine. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> How much do you all know about Bionicle? We, I opened up the Wikipedia page and read a little bit about, you know, the oh yeah? the invention of Bionicle. I don't know dick all from nothing. Bionicle's super cool and it has a lot of good lore. The only thing is that there's not, like, the first couple of years of the story were told with Flash games and Flash animations on the website. Oh, those can't be played anymore. Oh, I'm sure those are all archived somewhere. Um... And, I mean, there were comics and books, but it's hard to tell which ones matter from the ones that don't matter. <laughs> so it's, it's like Kingdom it's, Hearts, you have to experience everything. Right. It, it it's, can be a little difficult to navigate, and I haven't actually read all of the stuff either, so I'm not necessarily the authority on that, but I would love to talk about Bionicle. Okay, well, there may be somebody else on the Audio Entropy Network who's more versed in it or it could be a learning experience for all of us oh i know exactly who that person would be and it was <laughs> julie low ah of the digital moncast and transmission radio right big into bionicle is julie yes however she is also extremely busy yeah i think that uh given how strained our own scheduling intersections have become i think scheduling that particular call might be a little bit difficult we can dream but you know if the opportunity comes up i don't see why we couldn't make a bonus episode that way i can talk about my bionicle oc you know what why don't you do that right now okay so on the bcpower.com forums there's kind of a you know a form wide text play-by-post role-playing game of course yes and there wasn't like a a structure to it really how it worked is that topics had each topic was like a location on the island of Metro Nui. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's it's like each topic is a scene. Yeah. And you know, there would be like a bunch of parallel stories all going on at once. And whichever stories were the most popular kind of influenced everything else. But then right. there were also a ton a bunch of other uh, more minor stories going on. Oh, you are taking me back. Yeah, this is nostalgia. Yeah, I know. It's so good. <laughs> uh, I hope kids uh, nowadays are still doing this. Oh, 
God, I hope so. Where I think they're I doing do it this? on like Instagram and Twitter. Oh, that's not the same. These fucking kids <laughs> and their fucking phones. Uh, so, uh, so it was on the island of Metro Nui, which is sort of like the ad- advanced island with advanced technology. And my guy was named was named Tall, and he was from a village that's that's got destroyed recently, like a bunch of other villages. Right. It was destroyed by an evil guy who was Dr. Frankenstein, whose name I don't remember. And he was taking all the Matorans, and he, he was making a big monster out of them. And inside that monster, he was going to summon the spirit of Arak, the Rakshi of Destruction. Uh, and a Rakshi is like uh, an evil bionicle that's controlled by a slug. It's essentially like an Asura, almost. Essentially, sure. you're controlled... <laughs> Oh, Yerk. Yes. Uh, and uh, so Tall went into the Frankenstein, and then Arak was summoned, but then Tall, like, ex- exerted his his will, and now he, he shares the body with Arak, the Rakshi of Destruction, who has the power to destroy anything and summon a zombie army of all the Matorans that had been killed. But That's the Tall is is like a good guy, and like he he holds him back and keeps him from being too evil. So like a Doctor Jekyll and Hyde thing. Yeah. So Crystal, where is your OC in all of this? No, Tall. Oh, Tall is the OC. There you go. I thought that this was still part of the Bionicle lore. So no, it is. no. <laughs> Bionicle lore is much better. <laughs> no, this is very much uh, I. We'll say teenagers. Uh, oh, take... I was certainly not a teenager. <laughs> How old were you? I would have been about eleven years of age. That fits. It has this level, lovely balance of angst. You know, the possibility, the conflict. That it's just that, beautiful. That, that particular balance of emotions that kids that age find valuable. Yeah. There's this headiness to it that makes me so nostalgic did you ever write out things where tall would be forced into violent situations oh yes absolutely we had lots of storylines that were mostly ripped off of dragon ball z (laughs) Uh uh-huh because tall arak did have dragon ball z powers perfect you know it if we ever did like a rate my OC show, we wouldn't be mocking the OCs oh, no. most of the time. We'd be very genuinely like, oh, absolutely appreciating uh, the you, sincerity. I think it's safe to say, sorry, listeners, if this is a surprise to you, that all three of us involved on this podcast have our own share of history with this topic, and that if we did a rate your OC sort of thing then we would definitely be going into it with the perspective that, okay, let's see how people express themselves and reflect themselves in how they interact with the lore of this series they really enjoy as a kid. Yeah. God, there's so much intensity in the story of Tall. Thank, um, thank you for sharing that with us. That thank was you. that 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 takes an amount of vulnerability that I really do appreciate. Thank you. Would you like to take any more questions? <laughs> yeah, let's do some more. Okay. Uh, which ones have we not answered? Uh, the ones that are starred have not been answered. Joseph asks, 
Let's say that Nintendo decides to make a new co-op Zelda game, where the gimmick is that it's two-player with each player choosing a link from a previous Zelda title, similar to the dynamic between Sonic and Classic Sonic from the Sonic Generations game. <laughs> which link combo would you most want to see, and which dungeons would you be most interested in seeing redone in tribute in a modern game? Oh, piss. If it's... You know, going to be like Sonic and classic Sonic, it's got to be one of the more realistic looking links and Toon Link. What? Mm. I feel. I love that they did a Link Between Worlds Zelda in the new Smash Brothers. Oh, Ooh. yeah. Yeah, that's really nice. Like, I spent so long wondering how it's like Breath of the Wild has very nice designs for both Link and Zelda. You could make an argument that that's the best either of those characters has ever looked. But Ganondorf, the character who exists in Smash Brothers, is not in Breath of the Wild. So I thought, how are they going to handle Ganondorf in this? Is he going to remain a Twilight Princess design while the other two are Breath of the Wild? And Sakurai recently came out and said that what he did was he just made each character representative of different games in the Zelda series that he liked. No Skyward, though. Well, Unless. no. I mean, that sucks, but... Never got a, never got a shot. I no, guess Kirihima's an assist trophy. You never know. We could get, like, Impa as an Echo Fighter. I was dreaming of, like, a Breath of the Wild Zelda in Smash where she would have a, a guardian that she controlled. Oh, that would be good. That would do most of the moves for her because she's just, like... On, sitting on top of it and oh like broken. she's she's riding one of those ones that she, she's riding the uh major test of strength guardian yes and just beep booping it with the slate oh that would be we're so good i know it was probably too much to ask yes i do like the link between worlds zelda's design because sakurai made her very light-hearted and yes. she's absolutely gleeful as she is murdering you isn't it funny how we agree that this is probably the best design that she's ever had in Smash and how her implementation is exactly what we want out of the character when she is undoubtedly based on the absolute worst version of the princess from the past 20 years. Yeah. Well, in here, she's fighting and... Yeah. You know. <laughs> but I mean, like, she's really good in this. I yeah, love her in Smash Brothers. Even the mischievous side of her that you see in Smash isn't really something you see in A Link Between Worlds. But if her design had been leaked to me and I was told, oh, it's Link Between Worlds, I would have gone, fuck, that's the wrong one. But now that I see her, I'm like, oh, that was the right call. You should have definitely done that. They did kind of uh, Marth and Captain Falcon her and that they just gave her new personality. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. But that makes her, her taunt where she's waving you off. It's like, bye. Yeah, like, <laughs> bye, bitch, <laughs> is her expression. And it fits so much better than the Twilight Princess design. Yeah, it does. I like how she's just laughing at the end of so many of her attack cycle animations. Yeah. She's having fun at Smash. She's the Super Mario of Smash Brothers and that she's just there to have a good time. Yeah, in general, the Zelda, all the artistic changes they made to the Zelda characters make Zelda feel a little more fun of a series, and Sheik is still there as the badass one. Yeah, and they even changed Sheik a little bit in giving them all this armor plating and stuff. Yeah. yeah. 
which is very cool and a little bit more consistent with like a Breath of the Wild Sheikah aesthetic, sort of? Sort of. Sort of. Not very much. But it's very cool. Yeah. But yeah, it's very nice. Oh, so, you know, we've kind of gotten away from this fucking question here. So I my, gave my answer. No, you didn't. You gave half an answer or a third of an answer because you didn't say what dungeon. Every two, oh, a dungeon? Oh. No, 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 dude. Come on. Give me. Uh, who's the other link you would include besides Toon Link? And oh, Like Toon Link is several different ones of them, but I don't think it really matters. Toon Link is classic Sonic. Yes. I'm curious about your choice there, but who would the other link be? Because the framing here seems to suggest to me that it should be a specific version of Link from a specific game. Uh, yeah, but it's sort of like Smash where it's like the embodiment of Link. You can't say... It's Link it's and not, Toon Link. You can't say composite Link. Yes, Smash did. That Smash has Breath of the Wild Link now. That's a very different outfit. Okay, well, then Breath of the Wild Link. Okay, but okay, what dungeon? Redone in tribute in a modern game. What does that mean? For like it's being rebuilt to be played through in co-op. Oh goodness! I have an answer. Please, Crystal. The Stone Tower Temple. One player's right side up, the other's upside down. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I was just gonna say something stupid like the Cave of Ordeals or something. Okay. Who would your links be, Crystal? Um. Is it only two? Because it seems like each player choosing a link from a previous Zelda. Two player. It's two player. Two player um, co-op. Okay. So the link combo I most want to see. I would like to see Oracle's link and Zelda 2 link. Just because they're the most underrepresented or? Because one would be side scrolling and one would be top down. Oh, can this be like like Super Mario Odyssey where like there's a 3D Mario and then there's the 2D segments. I was thinking the Paper Mario Mario and Luigi crossover. Mm. Oh god. Yeah, okay. I guess okay. I can see that. Cam, your picks. But you never said your dungeon. I, I said like something like the Cave of Ordeals. Okay. Um God, I keep asking these questions but I wasn't thinking about it that hard myself. Um I will say that I would want the link from skyward sword and the link from i feel like you should have a child link in one of these maybe link from majora's mask and i think probably the dungeon i would most want to see redesigned for co-op would probably be the ancient cistern from skyward sword Mm. that's a good one I think that it's not just a good one, but it's one of the rare dungeons in the series that tells a very concrete narrative as you move through it. Mm-hmm. And if they could redo it so that it tries to relate the story of whatever overarching plot this co-op game has, that would be very good. Majora's Mask had a very brief co-op section. Oh, yeah. it did? Yeah. The idea of a co-op Zelda is something that's always existed on the edge of possibility in this space. That's very interesting because as fun as Triforce Heroes and the Four Swords games are, they're not really co-op Zeldas, so to speak. At least, they're not co-op in the way that's suggested by the cafe sequences in Majora's Mask. A little bit. Triforce Heroes especially. The cafe sequences give us a glimpse of into a Zelda game where you take completely different routes through a dungeon together oh. and 
something that you do in one room makes it so that it's possible for your partner to progress in another room. Imagine a 2D co-op Zelda where the two of you have to walk, talk each other through things that you're seeing and perform puzzles and give solutions that are only possible because the two of you are working together even though you're removed by a very great deal of space. Hey, this is possible with the Switch. Yeah, actually. It would have been possible on any of the online-capable Nintendo consoles. Maybe not so much the Wii, but, I mean... It would have been very possible on the Wii U, where one player can look at the gamepad and one at the screen. Yes. The Switch makes it even more possible because you could do it online. Though a multiplayer-only Zelda title of that kind, I think, would be a very hard sell any of the multiplayer Zelda games, it's possible to play them by yourself. But I think the structure that I'm talking about, it's only possible to do that in co-op. Unless you, you make do a Zelda Rust game. What the hell does that mean? You know, like Rust. Does Link start off naked? Yeah. All right. No, he is, Just he like a hundred people in the Breath of the Wild Hyrule. Okay. That would be a little bit mad, though, wouldn't it? Yeah. What happens to the guy who starts off like he spawned in the middle of the Hebra mountain range? Oh, he's going to die. Okay, I guess that's fair. I mean, it's completely random. You can't claim that it's not fair. 100 links jump out of an airplane. All right, and that's the end of E3. <laughs> who won E3? Well, see. <laughs> you know what? I'd love to hear your answer for this, Crystal. Who won E3? Uh, I think Microsoft had the best conference. Okay, okay. Do you think that the conference is the only measure by which E3 is won? No, I but I haven't gotten time to watch The Treehouse, which is usually pretty good. The Treehouse has been really fun this year. I've been working from home, so I've gotten to watch quite a bit of it. And it's been focusing on really fun parts of the new Mario Party, and you see a lot of Smash Brothers. And you, you know that um, robot game that they showed off at the very start of the Direct? Yeah. Uh, Chico, one of the translators for the Treehouse, played a large segment of it uh, earlier today, and that was really a lot of fun to watch. I think that that is the my dark horse favorite for the best game announced at this E3. It looks hmm. really cool. Hmm. I think the winners of E3 were us, the home audience that did not have to shuffle across Sony's <laughs> two stages or whatever. You're not wrong. We, huh. we we noticed at the front of the crowd and some of the crowd shots during Sony's conference that there was this woman near the far right in the front row who was like seven or eight months pregnant. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine how pissed off I would be if I was that pregnant and had to move around that much for no good goddamn reason. They say if you expose your baby to video games early, they're smarter. Well, that's awfully early. If you, if you let them listen to the sweet music of awesome stealth takedowns can we talk about the musical the, sweet music. <laughs> the musical intro to ghosts of tsushima oh for you a mean the white man playing the traditional japanese instrument in traditional japanese clothing yeah. now, now see playing the traditional japanese instrument fine he learned it that's him he played it very well he's the best player in the tri-state air why the motherfucker dress like this yeah you mean in the studio whose last game had digital red face yeah, okay, you're. Yeah, I know. Sucker Punch has a history with this shit. 
and it makes you really nervous about how they're going to portray the Mongolians uh, in this. God. <laughs> well, Neo Two and Sekiro: Shadows Die Twice were announced, so you know we'll have samurai games. I would really like to play Neo, actually. What were you going to say, baby? I was just wondering if the developers had anything to do with the show. I have to. I, I it. I have and the no. Musician, I have and the no, musicians get up. I have no reason to say yes, but one hundred percent, absolutely, <laughs> they dressed that man themselves. Oh goodness. In case any of our listeners aren't aware, Crystal already described it, but uh, previous to showing the samurai period piece action game Ghost of Tsushima, uh, Sony had a musician on stage who was playing a traditional Japanese wind instrument, and uh, this motherfucker was so white I named him Johan, and he was dressed in... Uh, extremely Japanese period garb with the, the rice paddy hat. Well, I wasn't going to use I wasn't going to use that phrasing, but you're allowed to, so uh. that's fine. Um, yeah, it, mm, it wasn't very comfortable. That game had good graphics, but you know what's a better game? What Assassin's Creed Odyssey? Assassin's Creed Odyssey looks that like game it looks ha- awesome. It looks like it has good combat, so that does give it a leg up over Ghost of Tsushima. It's, it's, you can be a girl. I really like Cassandra. Alexius is cool too. Yeah, he's fine. Cassandra's really cool though. You can, they actually look and sound Greek. They do. They, they have Mediterranean features in a way that, uh, certain people might not even necessarily recognize them as being white in the United States. Hmm. Hmm. I really like how Socrates (laughs) is this, like, Sort of tiny, burly man. He's just he's a hairy boy. Hairy. <laughs> he's a hairy boy, which Socrates probably was. Yep. Socrates is one thousand percent a Templar. Well, I mean, this Origins was the story of how the Guild of Assassins was started, right? That's correct. And this is, by people's best estimations, three or four hundred years before that. Yeah, it might and be your the car- origin story of the Templars. Because you're carrying around an actual piece of Eden and whooping the shit out of people with it. Yeah, I mean, you know, Ezio blew up people's brains. <laughs> Is that what Ezio did? Yeah, that's one of the powers of the Apple of Eden, which you can use in Assassin's Creed Brotherhood to make an AoE attack that blows up people's brains. Assassin's Creed is a very interesting series. It's so good. Odyssey looks legitimately very good. The graphics but are very good, and the boats look good. I know that you won't like the comparison, but in terms of how you move through the world and you interact with it, and even how it feels when the characters talk to each other, it feels very much like a CD Projekt game. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's absolutely taking cues from The Witcher 3 Wild Hunts. Which is a good place to take cues if you're building a game with this kind of structure. How do you feel about Cyberpunk? I don't need to see anything else about Cyberpunk. It was a okay. very good trailer, and apparently the impressions of people who were playing it behind closed doors uh, imply that the trajectory of improvements that went from Witcher 1 to Witcher 2 to Witcher 3, where each game was far better than the one that preceded it, is continuing with Cyberpunk. So you don't need to see any more because you're getting it. I'm getting oh, Yeah. People might not know how much we're into The Witcher 3. Monica and I spent an hour and a half earlier today having a discussion 
about the implications of identity in a world that's like cyberpunk and how our relationship with our own bodies might change in a world where the physical self is modular and it's very cool yeah yeah did you see that's that's been video game corner (laughs) we love video game corner and i know that our listeners love video game corner too and if you want to send us your own opinions on Video Game Corner, though really they should be limited to the Zelda corner of the Video Game Corner, you can, again, send those in to bookofmedorapodcast at gmail.com. Once more, bookofmedorapodcast at gmail.com. We do love your emails. Cameron, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter, at CamRider. You can find me at Arcane Crystal. You can find me on Let's Place on audioentropy.com it's a podcast where we scientifically and objectively rank every video game according to quality you can find me on mcu complete me a podcast where we talk about the marvel movies and we give them letter grades and we calculate their gpa now mcu complete me is up to episode two the incredible hulk what's the next episode that's coming out that would be iron man 2 And by the time our listeners hear this, it should be coming out on the following Tuesday? That is correct. Tuesday the 19th. Okay, that's cool. So Iron Man 2. Was that really the third MCU movie? Wow. That's correct, yes. Oh, interesting. What did Luke think of that one? Uh, We both thought it was entertaining in some ways and problematic in others. That's a pretty good description of the other Iron Man movie as well. Mm-hmm. Huh. I think there were other problems with Iron Man 2 that the first one definitely didn't have, though. Uh, it's been many years since I How watched How do you feel Iron about Man. libertarianism? Not a huge fan most of the time. At <laughs> okay, least you'll have some opinions on Iron Man 2. <laughs> the movie where Elon Musk makes a cameo. What happens to Elon Musk in Iron Man 2? He, he's, like, at a restaurant, and Pepper's like, oh, hi, Mr. Musk. Oh, my gosh. Oh, you meant actually and not figuratively. Yeah, no, the actual Elon Musk. Elon Musk is canon to the MCU. That's right. We can't have a black president, but Elon Musk is real. Uh, now I have a theory about Obama and the MCU. Okay, what's your theory? He, he did win the 2008 election. His vice president was not Joseph Biden, but rather... Uh, President Ellis, Vice President Ellis. Oh dear. At some point in early 2012, after uh, the 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 thing where he sang Al Green, at some point shortly after that, he stopped being president for unknown reasons. Sure. Uh, and uh, President Ellis became the president. But what was the reason? You know, maybe he resigned. Because who wants to be president in the MCU version? Maybe he became a superhero. Was he pushed out by Hydra? Possibly. But We're trying way, to... President, Vice President Ellis became president, and he served out the remainder of President Obama's term. And since it was less than two years, he was eligible for uh, to be elected twice once more. And he won the 2012 election and the uh, 2016 election. Is that it? Less than two years and you can be elected twice more? That's correct. That's an interesting bit of constitutional law that I was not aware of. You can be president for up to 10 years. Huh. Very interesting. And this makes it consistent with 
uh, Iron Man 3, set in Christmas 2012, where President Ellis says, You elected me on a single platform. I will protect this country at all costs. Oh, boy. What a line to have. I mean, they did just get invaded by aliens. Like, that would be a pretty big issue. The politics in the MCU version of the United States, like, if they really followed through on what that setting would mean, would be an unimaginable nightmare. Um, oh, yeah. How is how is Earth going to protect itself from aliens? Well, first, you have to get Iron Man. I guess. And you have to get Iron Man to arm the entire U.S. military force. That's terrible. Um, wow, I'm trying to imagine it. Like, that's one part of the setting that, like the arc reactor, they can never follow through on because that's as different from the world that we look at now as, like, the world's not good now, but I can't imagine what we would be like if aliens invaded and were fought back by force. Holy shit. That's when we learn that the nuclear bomb is bad and we unify in a, a gesture of peace across the world. I don't want to have this argument with you right now. <laughs> I swear to I swear to God, if we have to have the Watchmen discussion one more time about how much sense it makes and which version of the ending of Watchmen is better, <laughs> I will pile drive myself through an 18-story window and just dash myself on the ground below us. Uh, oh. That marks the end of this episode where we spent 45 minutes talking about Zelda and 45 minutes talking about <laughs> uh, religious esotericism and E3 and the Marvel films. Would you like a nice Zelda joke? Yes. Oh, God, no, but I guess we have to. Did you hear the joke from the previous episode? I didn't. Oh, 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 oh. oh. Okay, uh, tell, tell the joke, Crystal, but there is actually one that I wanted to share, too. Okay, this comes in from... Prince of Wakanda. Oh, yeah. Serious Tiberius on Twitter. That is the greatest handle. Friend of the show, I, Ty. It's so good. What's Ganon's most alluring feature? What is it? Demise. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Ty. Thank you, Ty. Thank you. Goodbye, everybody. Hey, what's it? Hey, I got another one from Ty. What's the big thing about Zelda jokes? What? People always try for some. <laughs> I like this Thai person. Okay, bye everybody. Bye.